0: this is veterans voices the secret war podcast series this series accompanies individual interviews with Hmong veterans who were active during the secret war veterans voices the secret war is brought to you by amper's diverse radio for minnesota's communities with Hmong museum and in progress with support from the minnesota arts and cultural heritage fund Those who came to the U.S. as children are often referred to as the 1.5 generation. On this show, three Hmong community members discuss their experiences as members of the 1.5 generation and how they feel like the term bridge generation might be a better fit as they often found themselves acting as translators for their parents while also navigating American society. Hosted by community leader Sita Lee Xiong with guests Hmong language teacher and filmmaker Yer Her, and art teacher and visual artist Si Sing Lee.
1: Sunya so, Zhang, my name is Sita. Li or Sida Li Hyung. And my family came to the United States in 1976. Before we get started, um, Shay, if you want to say your name and when you came to uh, this country.
2: Yeah, so my name is Yir. We came to the United States in uh, 1992. We came around the time where snow started falling. So that we got, they, I didn't get it because I was too young to remember what happened, but, but they experienced their first snowfall when we oh, came here to the United States. Yeah.
3: Wow. Um, Hi, uh, my name is uh, Shi Sing Sing Lee. Um, let's see. I came t- directly to Minneapolis, Minnesota, nineteen eighty four, June of nineteen eighty four, at the age of nine.
1: Sorry, you're how old? How old were you when you came over? I
3: was about
1: three or four. Three or four. four. So I was one. You were three and four. You were nine. Nine. Yeah. How much do you guys remember of life before, if anything?
2: Like before you came here?
1: Before you came to the States.
2: I, I don't have much memory. The only thing I remember is I hear a lot of stories about me because uh, they said back because in, in, in Thailand, the camp there, they have this one place where they have these monk statues. So I hear a lot of stories that I cried a lot when they went to that place just because, uh, I don't know, maybe as a little baby, you're afraid of them or something like that. And I have more memory about candy. I don't know if that candy was just really good or whatever, but I just <laughs> have more memory of this one vanilla, banana flavor growing up. (laughs) Yeah, that's all I really recall
3: from Mm Worsi. Well, um, knowing that I'm going to be doing this because we got in contact a while back, I have some vague memories, and I need to uh, reaffirm it or confirm it. So I happened to, um, my brother, one of my older brother happened to be in town so I went and met with him and just say, hey, um, these are very hazy memories. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, can you confirm it for me if it's true or things like that? And he said, okay. So I told him, so I could remember um, my most, I think my oldest memory, and he confirmed it, is us crossing the river, uh, the Mekong River. Uh, I was, I don't know, I was born 1975, right after, uh, in September-ish, they said, um, just the harvest season. So um, that's right after the United States pulled out. So anyways, uh, slowly we moved toward the edge of Laos to cross the Mekong River. And I remember us, large group of a whole village of us, all of my cousins and uncles and so on. So we, we got to the shore, I think, and then um, uh, we have four boats. And I said to him, my brother, I said, um, I remember four boats, they're really skinny and long, and it was raining too, and um, I remember we got shoved in there, and as we go across, the rain and the water was so strong that the elders had to use a whatever tools or a pan or whatever to get the water out so that we could make it across. And then we made it across, did we spend the night? I remember spending the night under some sort of tarp on the side, on the white ground and stuff, and I said, um, do you remember what we eat? Because right now, anytime I I I, I come across either mold beef jerky or wet moon beef jerky, that smell and that that still hit me really hard. And and I'm like, and and that's all I can remember um, my memory of of Laos or of anything. And I said, of course, yes, all those are true. Uh, For you, you think the boat is long and it's not that long? Uh, It's not because I think it was tiny. And he said, yes, we did uh, cross, but then we didn't spend the night um, on the other side. We actually made our way closer to the road and spent the night on the road. And then we actually walked about, I don't know, probably so many, not not a mile or something. And then the Thai soldier then found us, and then they escorted us to uh, the refugee camp. And I'm like, oh, okay, so everything I still remember, especially that crossing part, raining, is is that true? He said, yes, all of those are true. And he said, I really don't understand how, because I think I was only four or something, how you could remember that? I'm like, dude, I'm traumatized, man. What's wrong with you? (laughs) That's the only reason why I remember it. So from that point on, then, you know, some experience in the refugee camp, uh, some experience in Pananikum, which is the halfway place, and then early years in Minnesota. I think just because um, when, when, when you're young and everything is so new and so strange, it just lingers on, and then it's hard to forget about those moments. And so anyways, that's my oldest memory.
1: Let's talk about those early years in Minnesota. What did that look like for both of you?
2: So for me it was uh, Wisconsin. So we landed in Green Bay because uh, my mom's brother kind of sponsored us there. So we went there and we had to live with them for uh, I think a good period of time before we found a place to move out. And I just remember staring at the window like seeing like a grandma walk through back and forth and back and forth. And then uh, I don't remember seeing that water hydrant. And I'm like, did that grandma just turn to like a water hydrant? Right? Because you know how like when they have when it's cold they have their hat on, right? So it looks just like a water hydrant. So that was from my early moment and then I'll grow up, I'm like, no, that gram did not turn to a water hydrant. It's just that it looks really similar. <laughs> when did you come to the So we came in right before I two K. So yeah, so I remember we came and there was like a bunch of like I was in fourth grade I think when we came. We had to skip two months of school just because we came here late. So yeah, so yeah, it was right before I two K. So, what's to Wausau, we came here. Uh, I remember it was a long drive. I think when you were a kid, everything seems long or Big. exaggerated. Right? Yeah, and yeah. then now I'm all, it's not too bad. But it feels like it took forever just coming from uh, Wisconsin to Minnesota. <laughs> Wausau to Twin
1: City? Yeah. St. Paul?
2: Yes. And I heard that the road got constructed better now, too. So, it's <laughs> yeah, faster yeah, now, yeah, too. Yeah, Because back then, the road wasn't as good, too. So, it yeah. took
3: longer to, like, yeah. come over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's true. 24 used to be just a two-way, very small, <laughs> small. Um my memory early memory of america um it was hard um i i still uh i got I, I still saw a photo of of us arriving at the international airport because my dad is you know the elders they're they're closer together and then one one comes everyone come to greet them and uh, I think t- my sibling would just carry me out of the plane because the whole journey, I mentioned to my brother about the journey coming and he validated all the points too. And uh, I was so sick and and, and and motion sick and I was so thin and I, in the photo, I got the red string on my neck because I think my parents did that just to make sure I feel better. And then I remember my brother just carrying me over and that was, that, that was the photo. And then when I look at it, I remember that. Uh, but in terms of uh, my early days, um, if I could remember it, our first house, uh, most of my siblings came here, uh, and, and they're older, so I have a really huge family. And so they're the one who kind of sponsored us, along with the uh, Powderhorn Baptist Church in Minneapolis, South Minneapolis. And so uh, when we got here, we actually go into a big house. That house has like three floors, including the basement and then five big bedroom and two bathrooms or something. But then because my sibling, there are so many siblings who have family. I remember all the kids, us and my parents in one room and then each brother and their family in another room. So there's like, I don't know, 20, some of us. And then we all reside in this big house with five bedroom. And I remember uh, for us to, to uh, preserve water cause you know, all the bills are expensive. I don't care, but they did. Um, I remember my sibling them actually got us those uh, wicker plates, and they would buy tons of the paper plates. And then when we eat, we, we would put the plate on the wicker plate, paper plate, and then eat from there, and then at the end we don't have to use water. So we just discard that. And that was a fun, not fun, but that was a memory that I still remember. I'm like, and nowadays I, I try to practice that, for my family say no. So, uh, there's a lot of a lot of, uh, and also, I don't know about you, but uh, in Minneapolis back in the days when I got here, we moved a lot. We moved a lot, and I never knew why. I was just young, didn't care. Anytime they say go, I'm like, oh, okay, new house. But we moved a lot because I think uh, just affordable housing um, or waiting to get into Section Eight or public housing, one of those. And slowly, we move out from that house. Each family start moving, and then it get really empty. And then they move to the north, Minneapolis north, near north area, the project's there. And then my parents actually got a um, Section 8 home on the north side as well. And that's where I kind of grew up.
2: It's funny you mentioned about moving a lot, because when we moved to Minnesota, I think we moved six times already since we moved here. And uh, (laughs) so funny, after like... I think 15 years of moving around, we end up on the same street. <laughs> <Again>.
3: <laughs> <laughs> just like four blocks down.
2: Oh, and it's right next to our old bus was in Elementary. And I'm like, how do we end up like <laughs> back here? <laughs> yeah, so it was funny. I end up back on the same street. And my brother ended up buying one of our first houses that we came to Minnesota. It's just for memory. So he ended up buying that house. And we went back and visited that house because he bought it and for memory. And then I'm like... I remember we used to be so big, I guess we were little back then, so it, it, it feels so much smaller and everything, so it was, was kind of nice, but like you said, like, there's a lot of behind the scenes that as little kids, we're not aware of, like, like I didn't feel poor growing up, I didn't feel like that at all, you know, I felt like fine, you know, but now when we reflect back, like, I think we were kind of poor, just because I remember seeing rats around the house all the time, and yeah. got low, like, cockroaches yeah. and all this stuff, and but growing up, I think that's our parents, like, that's what they do for us, like, they want us to have a good life, so they don't don't show that side to us as much, and we we don't really see it too until you're older. And we reflect back, you're like, oh yeah, I guess we didn't live that nice.
3: <laughs> yeah, um, my what, what I notice, and this is just my own observation. Um, I think the the Hmong people that struggle the most are the first wave, your wave, nineteen seventy five, seventy six to seventy eight ish. Uh, and then I came 84, so meaning my brother and them already came for four years. They kind of established themselves, or at least know what to do, got their job, and so on. Um, and then I think if you come in 91, 92, then that means many of the infrastructure has been set to support new immigrants or refugees. And so I feel like though it was tougher for you, it, it wasn't as tough as the first wave, and then mine was in the middle. Uh, because I did remember growing up poor, uh, we go to Salvation Army to get to get clothes i can't we can 't afford target clothes um, we also uh i i when I taught at Minneapolis North um at times I said to my students, "The only difference between you and I is that i 'm five one and you 're five ten you know you're 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 black and i 'm Asian whatever." But the truth is, I grew up in this area. I know every food shelf, every church, every community organization here. And so if I can get out of this area and, and be able to switch seats, I'm sure you can too. Uh, because I, start, I said to them, I started with nothing. Uh, actually, I said, I start below nothing. Not knowing a word of English, not knowing the culture, not knowing anything. And I'm able to switch that, and I'm sure you can too. And so for us, it was uh, the food shelf, the church around Minneapolis North, Potton Baptist Church that I attended, um, Salvation Army, and all of those stuff. And so I knew we were poor. Uh, in the neighborhood, drug dealers are everywhere, and I, sometimes my parents and them are just like, oh my God, it's the same people. Don't they see that it's just us? Why do they want to stop us? It's we're the same people in the same area and they're in the same corner. Um, so anyways, um, so for us, it was quite clear, especially when I went to school. Um, some of my friends are a little bit better off. You could see that, cause you know, especially in high school, Jabal, do you remember the brand Jabal? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. dream. Jibble jeans. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, oh, that white tag. Oh my God, that's so cool, so expensive. And so my, my thing is like, yeah, I do see the big difference, especially being young at that age, you know, how social and everything is so important. Uh, and when I chat with my brother, he said, um, they came here around way older, like 17, 16. And he said, um, and this is the thing I want to share. He said, um, he's saying, I never uh, care to tell my girl where I live because they went to Edison High School, which is the northeast Minneapolis, and we uh, we live on the north side. We don't tell them. They're like, where do you live? Over there. And that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, like they would dress up. They, they, They always look at their best, I mean, trying to look their best. And so they're like, because we're, I think the word shame could be used, you know, that we are so poor that it's, I would rather just tell you that I live over there and not show you where I live. Because I mean, if they come in, it's like I said, it's a house that has so many people in there. You know.
1: Let me ask a little bit more about the difference in terms of uh, waves of immigration. But yeah, mm-hmm. because in some ways, I can see what you're saying. So you're saying just like the first people come over, there's really there's not a lot here, mm-hmm. and you, you're the first of every to do anything, the mm-hmm. first family in the in the neighborhood, the first. The first people to try to explain what Hmong is, that's yeah. different from Lao people, that's different yeah. from Vietnamese. First people to have to explain a lot of things to all mm-hmm. these people. And so I think I can see where that's where you're coming from. I guess, um, my question is, are there, or are there any other things mm-hmm. that were maybe easier because, um, for you or, or maybe that you felt like you had an advantage over folks who came later, maybe beca- because, because for me, I'll just give an example. I suppose part of our experience coming over is that even though we were the the first in our school in our neighborhood, there were a lot of people who were willing to. The people who were willing to help were very willing to help. And after a while, I could see the second, like my cousins who came later, and and then even later in the late eighties and the nineties when the uh, refugee camps were closed, people were tired of of helping Hmong folks. And they're like, why don't you have your, st- your your you know, ev- things together? So I, in some ways, I feel like coming over young and early, it, um, you know, definitely still racism <laughs> existed mm-hmm. then, exists now. Mm-hmm. But the people who are willing to help were more willing to help. And it seemed harder for next groups of families to come when they were even – even though there were things in place that that was never enough. Mm -hmm. And when we came over, when my family came over, when when the church sponsored us, Mm -hmm. they were very willing to, um, you know, drive my parents around. They were like, they were part of our lives. The Mm -hmm. church was a part of my life. And I could see later on that uh, other families even though they might have church sponsorship or the, the attending sponsor, that the, there wasn't enough to go around. So I was wondering if you, there are other things that maybe you feel like were advantages of coming over as young as you did and as, as um, when you did.
2: Yeah, because I think when we came, like we started to translate like, for our parents just because uh, <laughs> that's one thing that I think every generation we still struggle because... Um, you don't have someone else other than your family you can rely on right away. You know, when males there, you gotta translate right there. You can't go like, I gotta wait a couple of days and go to your cousin. Yeah, so some things like that are, I think every generation used to experience that. It's just that uh, when we come later, then maybe, because I remember came, we came in, a lot of my my cousins, they were born here, so we didn't know English, and they spoke only English. So there was always that gap between me and my cousin until now that we know English, now we can speak to each other, but back then, like, I don't know. They just look at us weird. We're a cousin. They look at us like, oh, we just came to the United States. Like we're still like, I'm not or like too too <laughs> too chaotic, right? So yeah. So that that's, that's that thing. And then uh, I think we didn't live long. Then we kind of move on and live on ourself. And that's when um we were on ourself. That's when a lot of things came. And I'm like, I don't know how my dad does it. He raised all of us. And I'm like, if I was to, if you just throw me like a new country like your dad, I think. I don't know if I'll be able to do what you did to all my kids. <laughs> I don't know if we'll survive. Like you don't know English, but but let let show them more. Right, whatever they need, they do it because they know that that's how they gonna keep us alive, right? Yeah. So that's something where I feel that um, we still struggle in some ways too. But definitely, like like there are a little bit more help out there, a little bit more. I gotta have to like. I guess we had ESL when we came, ready, but the, gen- the new generation they probably didn't have ESL. They had to like. Learn from you guys to create yes. So for you guys, <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. I I think I was too young to to pay attention to how I got supported or who supported me, um, and so it's hard for me to say what advantage, or if I feel anything. Um, I there there are a few stories that was I I don't know. It's it's I keep t- telling them. That's why it's so fresh. I remember um, my Sunday school teacher brought me a bike you know cuz they know where we live and we don't know we can't get anyone. and he brought me a bike and he dropped it off and he says for you and I looked at him like I want it mom dad and mom and dad said no no we do such size got size why would you, why would they give us a bike you know and I'm like but mom dad I want that And like I can't have it and you know like and then he's like no have it take it cuz we're thinking like it has to be exchanged right <laughs> Yeah. I and mean, then you know I was like, and then I was struck by that for a long time. I'm like, why the hell would he just do that, right? And uh, it was to um, my, fir- my first or second year in, in teaching. I ran into a, a mentor of mine. I, I For some reason, I don't know how that came about, and I explained that to him. He said, oh, is he saying that's an Americana thing. Uh, it's called pay forward. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, somebody must have helped this gentleman, this youth leader of yours, Uh, When he was in need of something, and now he saw you, and he just wants to make it better for you. That's why he expects nothing in return. I'm like, oh, damn, okay. I thought, I owe this guy forever, you know? Mm -hmm. And so anyways, um, so in those days, I I got help, but I think I was too young to know what kind of help, what, you know, I think my parents then would probably notice that more than I do. See, that
2: since it came early, which city and how was it like for you growing up um
1: my family was uh sponsored by a catholic church in combine locks wisconsin and we lived in this next small town over um in kimberly wisconsin and, yeah, it's so small that you don't, like, <laughs> won't know where it is unless I say we, we lived outside of Appleton. Okay. So at most least. people know, in Wisconsin at least, where Appleton is. Yeah. And if you're not from Wisconsin at all, then it's, like, <laughs> uh, maybe an hour away from Green Bay. Okay. Right? <laughs> so I grew up in Kimberly. Um, and we, there, I would say there's two big there's two big churches, both Catholic and we we were sponsored by one of those churches and that entire parish um, really grew up with all of us. So I am the youngest or second the youngest girl, the second youngest of all of six kids. My brother Robert uh, was born here and I could tell the difference immediately that you know as g- when as soon as we went to school, the difference between how, he grew up and how I grew up, even though we're only a couple of years apart, mm. because his name is Robert Paul, and he was named after the parish that sponsored us. And mm. they were very close in a part of our life, even though I was young and, and my the parish loved my family. Robert was like their, their baby. And, and all the rest of us were great kids and they <laughs> loved us. But Robert was their baby. <laughs> and um so... That small town really, you know, there's definitely, like I said, you're still people who aren't as accepting or as helpful. But that that town and that and that um, church really protected us from a lot of the overt racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother, because he had he had the name of the church, I think he. Being born here for him gave him a different experience, even than, than me, just a couple of years older than him. And then my older brothers and sisters, my oldest sister is 10 years older than me. She came over. And she had a totally different experience. Yeah. <laughs> we lived in the yeah. same house, had the yeah. same community. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just really different when you come over as a, you know, as a teenager, or as an early teen, um, then later on. So I, I always thought that that was just a – like, for instance, ESL was a big deal because my my brothers and sisters were – older brothers and sisters were in ESL. But by the time I went to school, I didn't have to go to ESL. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see, one, then I, that in other places, Hmong kids, when they were tracked into ESL, never got out of it, even though their English was passable, like you know you could you could still read and understand things but then you got tracked in into less academically rigorous mm-hmm. um, courses it that didn't happen for us because we didn't go to a school district that had a lot of monk kids mm-hmm. so I could see for me that even though my brothers and my older brothers and sisters were tracked into ESL they got out of it mm-hmm. because we our school just didn't have enough resources and mm-hmm. yeah, but other s- students, other Hmong kids, mm-hmm. they just, they stayed there and and there's like other Hmong kids, there. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it was more comfortable there. Right, right. Um, but in our school district, because we didn't have that, we just, um, I could see the a different level of support. Um, so yeah, that's uh, my small town experience. I find <laughs> that it was a big adjustment for us to or for me and for my family to come into the city and to be around other Hmong people because there's just not very many um, where where I lived. When you think back on on other you know either waves of of, of Mong people coming over or different ages, what's the what's the most um, I don't know what are some of those differences that stand out to you even uh, looking at you know people who are our age but who come at different times mm-hmm. or at different parts either different times in of their life or just different times in terms of the waves
2: yeah it's, it's funny because uh growing up I, I didn't know I have I had a sister from like overseas I thought that wow. it was just our family I thought I had like five brothers and one sister and then uh when I grew up older, they're like, You have two sisters that that's still overseas. I'm like, I have two sisters? <laughs> and then uh so 2004, when uh then when they closed the camp in in uh Thailand and they, they actually came. But, uh, yeah, they were sponsored by my my older sister and they actually came and they they did experience a bit different. They they, did, they luckily they gotta stay at our house so at least they're more comfortable <laughs> at our house and then before they found a place to go. But yeah definitely it's a little different for them since they have us here already, and we kinda went through all the hoops already, so they kinda know what's going on and and there's a lot more support when they came to thousand and four, yeah and so I guess their experience is definitely a little bit different than us, and one of my nephews like they're like, hey, they love snow, they're like if we ever see snow, we're gonna eat all the snows. And then uh, winter and the snow came, like, oh, there you go. You guys go, go eat all the snows. They're like, we didn't think it was gonna be that much. They're like, yes. <laughs> yeah, so that was an experience for them. They're really skinny too. They're really skinny. And now I'm like, wow, you guys are gaining weights now. Because <laughs> yeah, some of them they were so skinny. I'm like, I don't think you guys are gaining weights, but they're, they're, they're gaining. And uh, yeah, and being a teacher, uh, you, you see the different waves too. Yeah, and how the motivation is a little bit different for like, but right? Those that are raised here versus those that came from Thailand and now we have those are, we still have those that keep coming from Laos too. And you see how the motivation is really different. Laos those that just came from Laos they're more motivated academically more than but mm-hmm. And and Lao the those that came from Thailand during two thousand four they're starting to be like oh God, now too. So they're slowly losing that motivation too. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I I could just say like this. Uh, now that you mentioned uh, Wave two thousand four, and I I call or I kind of label that as one of the last wave, and um, because I taught in Minneapolis High School, I was able to to have uh, a few network and connections and so on, and I found out that one of the wave that came, you know, that year or so, and my girls are still young; they're uh, you know they're quite young, and so. Anyways, I found out that they live at uh, Mary's Place, which is the home shelter, homeless shelter in Minneapolis. And I'm like, oh my God, I never imagined a Hmong family living at a homeless shelter. Because maybe, uh, the thing is, like you said, you know, once after you know, the initial um, hype of supporting new arrivals, now it's like waning so much. And even the Hmong community, Uh, They're just, I don't know, they themselves just don't reach out, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, with all the organization out there, that's why in my mind, I'm like, how do you end up at a homeless shelter? And obviously it's temporary for, I don't know, six or a year. But anyways, uh, my girl's birthday, so I decided to arrange for a um, birthday celebration. And I decided to arrange to go pick up all the kids from Mary's Place. And bring them to our house, and you know, do the girls' birthday. And then all my guests, I would say that for um, for them to come and um, bring presents for the girls, could they not bring for the girls, but bring for our guests? And it was so cool. We play, we have fun. We did all the stuff in the backyard, and it wasn't anything. It was just like a moonwalk and some obstacle course that I created. And uh, at the end. Well, like all the my two girls, and they're all just like, "Hey, um, these presents are for you guys." And then they slowly just come and pick. And then watching their eyes open the presents, and they're like, "Is it really for me?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, that I know that feeling." <laughs> like, yes, it's for you. So uh, I kind of kept in touch. Some of the family they moved to California. Others they actually stayed. Uh, one went to Minneapolis North. Uh, actually went to the arts and at his exhibition. Um, the gallery owner, which I do know, uh, called me and said, would you come? And it was a time when I couldn't go. But he said the reason he reached out to me directly was because uh, he came to the birthday party. And so I thought, oh, my God, how could I miss this? But I just simply couldn't make it. It was one of those times. But anyways, um, every wave has a different experience. Kind of like you said, even different age within the same family has different experience. Um, I think I'm just lucky that I'm tiny and young, that I didn't see all the real struggle that my older brother and them went through, my parents went through. Um, and so, again, uh, now that I'm able to pull out and come from a lens where I'm a little bit more established and I see the new wave, then I could see a little bit different too um, in terms of, again, the lack of support or the support or the ability to support and not support all of that stuff when you pull back you're able to see that clearer
1: so i'm curious about um what it means to be a 1.5 generation person for you because it's a little bit like you're young enough to to feel mongmika maybe but Old enough that you're not actually you still had to go through some kind of citizenship, even if it's under your parents, um, and old maybe old enough to at least for me, even though I was only uh, I was still an infant when I came, I still feel uh, that there is a big difference between me and my brother's experience. My brother who was born here, and and I have a sense, I feel like maybe I have a different sense of responsibility um to kind of hold on to that to that history a little bit, even though, you know, two or three years doesn't really make a difference in in developmental years, but it felt like a difference just in the way that um we're connected to our community or not. So I wonder if there's um what it means for you to to be a 1.5 generation person.
2: They asked that because uh, we have, so all of us are born older, and we have one brother who's born in the United States. We always come to me because he was born here. So that's how we label him as. But just growing up, I always see myself as just Hmong until I get older and older, and just realizing that, yes, I am Hmong, but I have to label that. We got part just because just cause that has become so much of a part of our life, too, that we can't just ignore that I'm just Hmong. But yeah, so just, just like how we live in St. Paul and that, but sometimes the label, we're going to Hmong, like Hmong Minnesota, like Hmong California, right? Or we're going to Hmong St. Paul, like Minneapolis, whatever, right? So we have these smaller labels, you know, so I'm like, yeah, so that, that's kind of how I feel like it is being in the 1.5 that we carry that that Hmong title while we're trying to adapt into this new world and trying to understand how it works.
3: Oh, I I... I I I have had this conversation before with myself and with some colleagues and I don't know the real terms but I always question it and I said am I a 1.5 or am I actually a
1: 0.5 Me too I right. had that conversation right. too because personally
3: for me <laughs> I don't see myself as a 1.5 I see my children my two daughters your brother uh, Paul, uh, see them as the 1.0 they're, they're the American Born here. Our parents, they fully established elsewhere. They came here when they're already fully established. And then, me, I see myself the better term I like to use that I feel like it is more fitting for me is the bridge generation. Because we were born elsewhere. We kind of, I kind of grew up elsewhere and I was raised in America. Uh, and so I see myself as more like a bridge generation, kind of like you said. You go to school, and you help your mom, and you help your teacher. You're bridging the gap. Uh, am I fully Hmong, um, blah, or not really? Am I fully American? No, not really. And that's why I, I said maybe 1.5 is kind of too, too difficult because I see my parents as zero. I see myself as 0. 0.5. I see my children as one, the first true generation. And then I said, you know, instead of questioning 0.5, 1.5, I see myself as a bridge generation. Because I, uh, and, and then going back to, or how do I deal with that? There are different phases in my life that I dealt with that. Uh, when I first got here, it was really hard. grew up in a refugee camp. That's all I know. And then tossed into America and say, do this. I don't know school. Luckily I have a nephew who are as old as me or older that guide me through school. It was a struggle. Um, and then through my discovering years, self discovery years, I hate being mom. I really do. And I hate being American because either either way I don't fit. When I come home, I preach to my parents about, you know, certain American you know, ideal. They're like, right? And then when I go to school, my teacher said, you could be anything you want to be. You know what? As long as you work hard and blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, okay, I got to co-switch. Cool when I go to school, I got to switch. And when I get home, I got to switch. And I hated that. That was stressful. That was difficult. And I just said, can I just be one? Um, And then, nowadays, I'm as old as dirt now, I said, uh, at that time, I, I said to people, I'm like, gosh, you know, living with the collision of two culture is such a burden, so stressful. But then, when my parents are gone, and then when I became an, a, an adult, and a father, a husband, and, you know, Darn it, one of the older people in our community. Because our elders are gone. And then I start to realize how beautiful the Hmong people are. And then I said, oh my gosh. living Living with the collision of two vastly different cultures is not a burden, but a blessing in disguise. Because I get to pick the best of both worlds. I mean... I have two beautiful daughters My in-law, my father, when they're still around Mom and Dad, you know what, who's the most powerful woman in the world? Like, I don't know, like Queen Elizabeth, right? Yeah? Okay, see, so do I have to have that? And so for me, that's what I'm trying to do right now. I, I, I have two girls. That's all I need. Um, and I don't care if they're boys or not. You know, like I have tons of nephews, tons of brothers. I have, people who have plenty of food sent to me when I'm gone. But that, that's the kind of stuff I'm saying. I get to choose best of both worlds. I, I get to be the best version of Hmong that I want it to be. And I want to capture certain cultural practice that's not hurtful to many and then only helpful to a few, I try so hard not to to uh i don't know uh continue those practices or pass it on to my my children or people around me, but at the same time, I also preach how resilient the Hmong people are because without their resiliency early. My my mom and dad I mean I'm the one of the younger one. And they're able to kill uh, all of us were born in Laos. And and then more to I'm like I can't I have two girls, and I have a hard time raising them. And how, did, how, how was he able to do that in that time, during that time with, they, with, with the chaos and so on? And then I said, it's not just him. It's his generation. How did they find ways to, to live? That is true definition of resiliency right there. And so to me, those are the stuff I tell people. If you scream on pride, be prideful. Of our legacy, of our resiliency, a will to survive hundreds of years and we still say And some of us may not know what that means. I may not know all that mean. But I said Asongation still might be the loo, as songs we still practice certain cultural and and uh, retain certain element. I think I'm hopeful for the future because we, we will just Preserve um, elements that that will transcend time and space, that will will help not just one group but all group, and that is something I'm excited about. But I really don't have a grip on it yet.
2: You know, it, and it's interesting to think that in the future, the way how we see monks can be different than how we perceive our appearance. Like when we think of we thing of the jingling, like really old like that, right? But now when we think of Hmong in the future, like. I don't know, it might be like this, living in like, a nice house, having lots of money, I don't know. It's <laughs> a t- t- totally different, right? You're being in outer space, flying like, I don't know, to other planets, yeah. So yeah. yes, we are totally evolving and uh, like you said, like, we to keep and choose what we want to pass on mm-hmm. as mo and what, because we're not perfect, you know, well, there's some flaws and something we change, just like, we I mean, think of Mika too. if you think of back in the days, they're, they're like us, they, they, they believe in witchcraft and all that stuff too, you know, and they slowly evolve. And I think we're still in that phase, where we're slowly evolving, changing to become the best version of how Hmong is in the mm-hmm. future.
3: Yeah, um, I said that uh, for a long time, especially my elders before they're gone. Some of them say, "Oh, nature Mon not nema yamika, hello hello ka pece, so Hadi chaw," blah blah blah, and they go turn around with their a Mon, jolly hey, ni sad Mom and dad or uncle. Right now we have the resources, we have the technology to see how they live. Let uh, you live in this You idolize or you have an ideal image of what it's supposed to be. But I, I said to them, the basis of anything to remain viable is change. You have to change. You have to adapt. Otherwise, it's going to disappear because you're forcing something that we all cannot live up to. And so a lot of people say, you're more Hmong than I am. I'm like, okay, what are you basing that on? I still speak Hmong. I still do my Hmong ritual practices, all that stuff. But no, I don't live in a hut. I don't live, I, I don't go to gather as much every weekend. So am I less small than you? The truth is, I, I think as long as, like I said, could speak the language, you, 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 you still continue some of the practices, ritual practices, you still honor the elders, you still honor your community. You still, you know, those are the subtle things that will still define you as small.
2: Didn't show that you're because uh, I had this one uh, student, right, and for when you call him that he's not Hmong, he feels offended. He's like we're Hmong, all. you know, because he was raised, he was adopted by a so Mongol um parent. Yeah, I'm Like, don't you want to know your parent? No, because I'm a Portuguese, right? So he was so convinced that he's Hmong. I'm like, that's like a whole new level of being Hmong That you don't Yeah, it's about you want to be part of that group. You feel belong in that group. Yeah.
3: And then. Oh, I'm 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 sorry. I was gonna say just to add on to that, right? My nieces and them, a few of my nieces marry non-Mong person, and my nieces and them, my my grandniece and and nephews, they some I look like us physically, some I don't, but they see themselves as Mong, and I call them Mong kids, you know. I think. When when in this day and age, right, to categorize, to label is so difficult now. I think back in the days, we need that just to, to to understand our surrounding. And and we so pride ourselves because of our lived situation back in the days. And so we have to be protective of our village and know who's coming, who's going. I get that. So nowadays, we, we can't label that because the mall is so... Our experience and our people are so rich and so broad now. We we are not homogeneous anymore. Our mindsets are broad. It has both breadth and depth. And so it's so hard to, that's why I said, it's like, it's so hard to say you're more Hmong than I am. And the truth is, I I think being Hmong is not physical. And um, I will leave this thought in, in, in this recording. As a Hmong artist, sometimes when there's an art show, they're like, we want to show Hmong art. And I'm like, okay, if this person who's non-Mong create a piece of work that captured the Hmong experience, are you going to include that piece? Does that make sense? And then just because I'm Hmong and I spit some paint on paper, now I want my piece to be shown. Are you going to allow me to put on it? And that's the struggle. What is Hmong art? What is Hmong? And and I, I I I think it would be my life life um, work to find out and to to figure out these elements that I'm talking about.
1: Big question, oh. flowing identity and culture, um, but that guy, you know, you were talking about um, coming over the kids. You can in school, you can see the kids. Ma, different level of motivation, Pia. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about examples of that or because i think part of that is not only the individual idea, you know how however well they're doing in school but kind of more about the environment or the time that they came so maybe there's something not just about your individual identity as home but like the things in our experience that help us to figure out our identity
2: yeah so when i first taught um uh... My first graduation class that I graduated like six years ago so there's a new family just came from Laos so there's two brothers and one sister and then uh when they graduated at our school he was in the top two so he has to do a speech even though you know that he's new to the country but he has to do a speech because he was he was like ranked two at our school and you can see that he's he's doing his best to do his speech and you know that anything blah right he just came to a country for three, four years and he was able to beat all of those students that grew up here in the United States to rank two in the top of our school. So I'm like that's motivation right there because um we have so many other students, but how come he became top two. Yeah. So that's the motivation, like the hunger for change and like that. So that's that's what I mean by motivation. And then and the, those that grew up here, they they live a better life. So they're not as motivated, or they don't have as much. They dream differently because for our generation, like I think we're trying to live up to our parents' dreams, their expectation. And the newer generation, they're a little bit more free to do what they want to do. I feel like that. So that's what I mean by motivation.
1: Mm-hmm. So what do you think the new the the new generation is seeking? Because they have more if if they are more free to do what they want to do. What does that mean or what does that look like? Where do you, what do you think the, those... Where, where is their motivation coming from or going towards?
3: I, I see how, how I interpret my experience, my lived experience is hard work and, and that type of motivation is just pure survival. When you have nothing... You only have X amount of ways to, to get out of or to do something. And I think that's what it was. Uh, growing up in poverty, growing up in the ghetto part of Minneapolis, all I ever wanted was a bed for myself. All I ever wanted was a room I could call my own. Um, and even in college, I have to share a room. So that just keeps pushing me to say, you know what, I, these are Very basic. Very basic. And so these are the stuff that pushed me to work hard because I yearn for that. Uh, I worked two jobs in college, and when I hear people say college is fun, I just roll my eyes. I'm like, college is not fun. College is work. It's pure work. There's no fun involved, just pure work. And so I think in some ways, I could only speak with my experience. My nephews, my own daughters, because I provide them with a room. The second they're born, they have their own room. Anytime they're hungry, we stuff a milk bottle or whatever food in their mouth. And the hope is that if I could support them with these things, then they don't have the energy or the time to think about these basic needs so that they could dream bigger, so that they could be the Sunni of the Hmong people. They could dream to become the astronaut, that I knew I couldn't dream that far. I remember asking my father "Dad, I want to be an artist. This was a very young, and, and my dad got angry and looked at me and said, I did not bend over and backward and bring you to this country, right, and you're going to be a freaking artist? What is art anyways? What are you going to do with your life? Be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a politician. Why? Because that's what he knew that would bring a steady income, prestige, and so on. He didn't even mention teacher. But I started to think about it. I'm like, no, Dad, I, I, I'd love to live up to your expectation and be the person you want me to be. But I have to do something I care about, or I'm, I feel like I'm actually good at. So I liked him. I'm like, I'm going to be a teacher. Never told him, our teacher, never invited him to my classroom until three years into teaching because I was so afraid that he he will uh, disapprove of my subject. (coughs) But the more people we care about teaching, teachers, so he said, okay, great. Be a teacher. I love that. And so um, I guess what I'm trying to do now is, though my girls may seem that they're not motivated in the same Breath that I see myself as motivated, or in the breath of my parents thinking we're not motivated, because they're the ones that oh my god, ba mờ thủ mờ on on co mờ tung kinh tung kinh by ba ba thứ ah mòu trẻ độ nay nhỏ ấy by cái này cái chữ cái này chữ chim bên mỏ độ nay non này ấy chữ ở cái con nay một con thơ xí na anh nay chuẩn chim một con thơ theo ấy all that stuff right. Guess what I do today with my girl? Same thing. Mommy and daddy, up in poverty, college, you whatever. Oh my God, shut my foot in my mouth and just said, be you. I would do all that I can to make sure you could dream bigger than I. And I said, um, all I care for you is I want you to have choice. Daddy and mommy, my parents, we didn't have a choice to live where we want to live, to go to work, on a bike, public transportation, or walk. We have no choice. Those are our only option. Honey, all I care about for you now is to take all these resources and tools and experience, and someday if you come to me and say, Mommy and daddy, I just want to walk to work, go ahead. I want to live on the north side where you grew up. Go for it. But the thing is that you get to choose versus you have to survive. And I think that's where the motivation and, and so on to me, I slowly appreciate uh, letting go um, because of that. Everyone has a unique life experience and what motivates them may not motivate me. Uh, and I try to honor that, but for a long time it's hard for me to honor that because, again, it's like, <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah.
1: How about you? How has your experience as a 1.5er helped or helped you make decisions in your life and maybe it, has it influenced your career? And
2: yes, de- definitely. um, like Just being more motivated because I remember when I was in high school, I, I was really after, after getting into sports like uh, the wrestling, tennis, and cross country running, right? They don't really know what cross country running is, right? Yeah. So I cross country running and my parents they never came to those because they don't know, but they did come when they came. Out. I was on the day when I'm like, why you come the day when I lose? Like, a yeah. <laughs> <I can> joke <laughs> them, yeah. But yeah, and there, I remember one time I was have this one race, uh, running up and up north. I never told my coaches why I don't go some years, just because um, cause it's like a hundred some dollar, right? And I'm like, I asked, and they're like, what, what do you need a hundred dollars something for, right? So well, you tell someone, no, 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 you just they oh, sorry, I just can't go because I'm busy. But it was because uh it was the money that you didn't you didn't want to ask your parents cuz you know that they're struggling too right so yeah so just those small little things i think that that created like um like like i'm kind of glad that i was kind of like you're not glad you are not I'm poor but you are kind of in a way glad that you had that motivation to want you, to improve your life better because of that struggle yeah so for me for me that was that 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 kind of driven me to kind of like go to higher education and became something and you know and my parents, luckily I became a Hmong teacher, so at least now generation, a lot of Hmong kids don't know how to speak Hmong, so at least my, my dad enjoys that, I'm at least doing something, <laughs> teaching, at least teaching Hmong, so yeah, but like like earlier you said about like now that the newer generation, they have all the resources, like well, how are they going to find motivation to like move on with the next generation, That that's... That's gonna be based on how the community influenced and who they see in life and get motivated because they they can be motivated differently than how we are and they they can just be a, a lazy bum this generation and they made the next generation they struggle again, they can strive. That's how American <laughs> that's how they say it, right? That every other generation there's always gonna have that struggle because that's yeah, then uh they'll resurface again after all that hardship. Yeah, so yeah, but like these things that we have, they have all the resources that we provide them. They sh- can dream, become whatever they want to. with This generation, they don't have to lift to our ex- expectation. If they don't want to go college, like college not for everybody. Like That's what we said, right? But our generation, like college was expected. We yeah. Like we didn't have, we a, choice. have a choice. High choice. school was something yeah. that you cannot drop. You got to finish. Yeah. So this generation, like, and, and education has changed a lot too. Like nowadays, like some people, they don't go to college. They're more successful than, for us that listened to parents and went through the whole system I'm like, how come some of my high school friends are more successful than I am and, and and they didn't even go to college, right? So things have totally changed a lot with generation and we're more open minded to our kids this generation and support them whatever they want to do as long as it's something good <laughs> for them. Yeah. So I'm also a filmmaker and uh one of the projects I did was it's called World of Found Hmong. It was a concept when I became a Hmong teacher. Um <laughs> I thought what'll happen if there's no longer any more Hmong? Like when I wake up, I'll be like, so we started a film where I love being Mong, and then I'll go to a place wearing Hmong clothes, and I woke up and then they see God, everything just disappeared. Yeah. And I drove to like Hmong Village, there's no more sign, or Hong <laughs> town. there's no more sign. And ha ha, ha. yeah, so that that, that those kind of influenced the way how I did. And that's why we did film too, just so we can uh Preserve, because I, I believe that filming preserve a generation, each of the generation. just like those monk dub. Like, if you see those monk dub back in the days versus now, you can see how the vocabulary, the richness of the vocabulary has changed to more simple words, and we do more like, you can kind of tell that, like, you know, mommy God dub because she only, not yeah. So, 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 that generation. So, yeah, just the filming. And, um, my parents, since I do it more on the side, so my parents, they don't really say much to it, like, they don't, support supportive. they don't like say like don't do it and like they, they they're the pretty neutral about it which that's why i'm still able to do it and express through the the filming
1: it almost feels like there's not only a evolution of of home culture but an evolution of home art so i wonder if you would just say if there are any thoughts about even how our generation 1.5ers or the bridge generation has bridged to the art world what does that look like? Because I will say that when I was growing up, right, bhandao was the art, and now, and partly it's because it's it's easy to recognize that that's Hmong art, and it's harder to figure out what are the other things, maybe besides kutia. Um, but now it feels like there's a lot of variety. But I, but that again gets to the question of what is art, but. I wonder what, how you guys think about the 1.5 generation's contribution or change in, in our approach towards the art part of our culture. Both of you being I, artists I, <laughs> I, <laughs> and I, teachers. Yeah, <laughs> I,
3: I could jump in. Uh, again, based on my own philosophy of art and my own practice in the visual art realm, um, I study classical art european art i really didn't care about eastern art or again at the time i would just i want something easy easily defined so western art is painting sculpture and i studied the classical period so you got formal structure on how to create a certain idea and and you know so on. so um i then struggle because uh when I present my work and then I stand next to it, they're like, wait, you're Asian and you're, produ- you're, you're producing that? And it's almost like my audience think that it's not authentic because it's, I can't associate you to a Monet-style painting or an abstract Picasso or you know, expressions like Van Gogh or even early classical period icon painting. They're like, you don't go to church, so why do you have an icon painting with gold leaf behind it? And then I start to struggle and I'm like, wait, I thought art is universal. It doesn't matter who created it. It's what people take away from it. And then um, at the time I struggled being Hmong and, and that was when I started to realize how beautiful the Hmong culture is. It's when my father passed away and uh, the anchor of my family of a hundred some. Uh, when he passed, the 12 siblings, with our wives, with our kids, grandkids, my father's funeral, just within our family, it's like 116. Within that, so it's more like, <laughs> and I started to realize, when my dad passed away, all his elders came. The whole Hmong community from far and wide came. The ritual was prescribed in a way where I'm more... Um, I think my senses were so heightened at that time because of his loss that I actually pay attention to everything sound, every 坑上, every, 字架海流, every word, every process, every movement. And I'm like, oh my God, these are beautiful things. And that's where my artwork started to take shape. And then I said, how can I use art as a vehicle to get the new generation or my, my, the, the future Hmong people to preserve again, these elements that transcend from China to Laos to here. What are these things that the Hmong people could preserve? And I'm going to preserve it through the arts so that at least the oh, you know, it's worth looking at. And then it's, it's it's it has meaning. So I'm going to, you know, so I use that as a vehicle to do it. Um, and so that's where my art lies. It's just uh, try to do these things and then you know, obviously do I use the king? Yes. Do I use pantao? Yes. And then with my personal yearning and my, my view of, of of what I want an ideal monk person to be, I actually lecture on the fact that I said, And therefore, And so, to me, that's just a gist of how I use my art form to do things that, to me, is more personal and more authentic. But then the sad truth is, flip of the coin. When I show my artwork at galleries, when I'm there, the audience say, explain that to me. Then I start to say, what if I'm not here? Will you still appreciate the work? So for me, it's just like, either end, it's just like, it's hard. So at the end, I'm just like, it's not about my audience. It's about a particular audience I care about. And it's what they walk away from, not the large larger audience, whatever that may mean. Yes,
2: for me like most of our film we always have like a good amount of Hmong words in there just to uh, kind of preserve that this generation. We do a lot of Hmonglish, too, just kind of preserve that that's the, this generation. Like you can't like speak like authentic just in like a modern movie anymore right now just cause uh, some words doesn't come out right. <laughs> so sometimes you throw in Hmonglish and it becomes like a joke. and uh. We try to put like a lot of Hmong uh the one thing that a lot of audience enjoy the movies that we bring in the modern Hmong culture into there. Like for example, like we did a we are in Juko right? So that's based on the Hmong concept of like the thirteenth days, right? We but we recreate it in a way where it makes sense in the modern world. And um and the one way we did was you know, we have a lot of these Facebook names where yeah, So we add that into the element into our movie where this guy's trying to find different girls to date, and those are the names that he has got like, like like all these names so people love that concept that that people don't put much in that movie and especially they can make kind of show much film down there because um after youtube those came out, they slowly die out and I think now as I know I think I don't know if there's any other Hmong production out there that still still do future films like. This anymore, they do a lot of short films, but slowly, slowly dying. But we're hoping that <laughs> it preserves something like that, and a little bit louder. At least even the younger kids. Sometimes we have like some. Recently, I just had just yesterday someone uh, a high schooler just messed me that they they, they rewatch our own movies again, and I'm like I thought they're at least older, but they're like no, we're just like because we saw your film like we went back and watched your film like a long time ago. and I'm like wow, like that's like that means you guys saw it when you guys were probably like in the elementary, and we're inspiring the younger generation to. To what is like that? Mong we do great stuff too, you know that we do want stuff is in and something like that, So that's kind of what I what we do for our filming. Yeah, just reaching out there and showing to people who still want to see Mong on the big screen because we don't see a lot of that. And, and, and sometimes watching on YouTube and watching in the theater and the environment where no one else can go anywhere else, just stay there. It's totally different. It's a totally different experience. It's so they totally call like like when we do the movie. Some parts we don't think it's even funny. But when we show it, some people laugh, and then the whole crowd laugh, and we're like, oh, we didn't expect that reaction. But it's the reaction that we love doing what we do.
3: And that just remind me, um, Asian media access. Back in the days, you know, it's like, you go to theater, there's no Asian movie. I remember the theater was filled when Jet Li was a special guest, or Jackie was a special guest in Cannonball Run, and whatever, uh, Lethal Weapon 4, and everyone filled in the, the, the movie theater. So Asian Media Access decided to put a Hong Kong movie, Asian night, Asian treats, and it was packed every night. So uh, I feel like we do need that, and I think we are ripe to do that, and we have the uh, professionals to do it, and um, I look forward to uh, more of those
1: you know coming over when we we're so little we really really relied on uh, nonprofits via and at the time there wasn't you know, we came over early or late 70s by the time the early 80s came around finally um, so I and because my parents um, were on the first wave yeah they um should have uh, and and I always grew up with not only and like the extended family, but then other Hmong people who who just because there's so few of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter if we're related, we're related <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then hm. yeah. And then especially to Hong, it I've always felt like there's this sense of responsibility to both the home community and then just broader communities and how we fit with other with other um mm-hmm. so I work in nonprofits and I I say that I grew up in nonprofits because literally that's <laughs> how I grew up. <laughs> like um mm-hmm. they they did all the all the everything, like grant writing, they did like finances, they did government, you know, all of that. And that was just part of the way that we grew up. Um, so however hard I tried to not be part of it, it just kept coming back. Um, kind of like a lucha. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that the, the, the difference is now that we have we have been here, that the, our understanding, our education, our kids, are, are they have different expectations. And we have different expectations of what a gung hao should do. And so now it's like, oh, to your question, who is the community? How do, we, how do we define Hmong? How are we holding that part of our culture? And do we have to do it in this way? Do we have to do it in, you know... Uh, through the clan system through the family home, and like so it's uh those are some big questions you <laughs> just trying to pay the bills
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I <laughs> but, think at the end of the day you're in the, you know
1: yeah thank you guys for your stories what's your you know I she she The you you know your stories are important it's um Continuing to, I think that's part of the, the evolution is just how we, how we understand ourselves and how we tell our stories to ourselves and to the next generation. So thank you for your
0: time. Veterans Voices, The Secret War is brought to you by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with Hmong Museum and In Progress with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.